Hey, welcome to Hope Denver. It is sunny in here. It is bright in this room. It's warm outside. When I was setting up the street signs, I was thanking God that I wasn't walking back into this building with frostbite. It's been snowing on Sundays for like the last two months straight. Uh, so th this is a treat. Um, if we haven't met before, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Denver, and I'm excited to dive into and to continue the series that we began last week called Pursuit. Uh, if you missed Sunday last week, if you missed church, I, I recommend catching up on the podcast. Uh, Pastor Ike gave us a thorough and a robust introduction to the book of Hebrews and into this series that we're launching into called Pursuits. Um, there's this greater theme throughout the book of Hebrews in that Jesus is a pioneer of our faith or one that went ahead as a trailblazer. So because of that, he sort of becomes uh, our end goal but he's also involved in the pursuit as well. So there's an importance in how we pursue God together. Now, speaking of that, I want to ask you a question as we start tonight. What comes to mind when you think about angels? What comes to mind when you think about angels? Uh, for me, I'll admit, it's a little bit creepy. I picture these naked floating baby cherubs with wings and harps and bows and arrows. My mom had this painting in our living room growing up, and I'm embarrassing you, Mom. I know you're here tonight. But it, it always kind of creeped me out a little bit, and it kind of informed how I picture angels uh, myself. Maybe for you, though, you think of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. In that movie, George uh, has this guardian angel named Clarence who intervenes and saves his life, and because of that, he earns his wings. Do you remember that? Uh, we have this ongoing debate in our house as to whether or not that is a Christmas movie. I don't think it is, and that might be the most polarizing thing I say uh, all night. Um, maybe, though, there's some other images within popular culture. Maybe you think of the movie Charlie's Angels. Uh, there was a recent horror movie uh, called Legion with like a dark, scary angel. I don't like scary movies. I didn't see that. I hope none of you did too. Um, maybe the TV show Touched by an Angel or the classic movie from my childhood, Angels in the Outfield. There's some good movies. Uh, maybe your mind goes to art. Angels have essentially been the symbol in art throughout uh, the centuries. There's these statues of Michael, the archangel around the world. Maybe you think of garden statues of angels. I think my grandparents may have some of those. Uh, maybe your mind goes to literature or poetry. Uh, the Divine Comedy is a well-known work of poetry, and there's these angels uh, within that story. Maybe you think of the Los Angeles Angels, the pro baseball team. Any Angels fans in the house? Good. We would kick, we'd kick you out. <laughs> Um, it was in the 1990s, though, that there seemed to be kind of this, this peak in angel infatuation. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Gangle from Fuller Seminary and the University of Missouri, he described this in, in, of the 90s as angel mania in a quarterly that he wrote in 1994. There was a 1990 book called Angels in Endangered Species by Malcolm Godwin. Uh, he estimated that one in, one in every ten pop songs features an angel. I almost walked out tonight to Chance the Rapper's Angel, but uh, <laughs> there's some bad language in that. Um, in that decade, in the 90s, uh, there were articles about angels in Time, in Newsweek, in Ladies Home Journal, and others. And the Newsweek article said that 13% uh, of Americans reported that they had seen or sensed the presence of an angel within the last year. So throughout history and art and popular culture, I think we as humans have had this obsession, this infatuation 
with angels or a notion of some spiritual being, something else that is out there that seems to maybe interact with our world and our lives somehow, right? The same seems to be true of the audience in which the author is writing to uh, in the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bible, if you have your phone, you can also look up on the screen. Uh, Our passage tonight, we're going to continue on in Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 5 through 14 for us. Beginning in verse 5, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels servants, and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They they will all wear out like garments. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Will you join me in a word of prayer? God, tonight as we open up your word, sometimes we open it up uh, simplistically. But as we open up your word, God, we believe that it is dynamic that it can speak to us, change our lives, stretch us in a way. So it's our ask that you would do that tonight, God. Instruct us, speak to us through your word, make this fun and interesting, God, and I'm just grateful for the chance to be gathered together uh, with my church family tonight. Uh, It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. So I mentioned Ike gave us uh, a robust introduction to the book of Hebrews, uh, but I bet some of you may have missed last week, it's ski season, etc. So just to give you a quick summary on this book, the book of Hebrews, um, it's believed that this is the written form of a preached message, that evidently at one point this was a book that was preached orally, and then pen was put to paper or ink to papyrus or whatever they initially wrote it in, and We don't exactly know who the author is of the book of Hebrews. There's these arguments for Paul or maybe one of his co-workers like Barnabas or Apollos. There's actually better arguments that it wasn't Paul. Ultimately, we just don't know. Uh, But chapter 2 tells us that whoever they were, they had a first-hand relationship with the disciples who were themselves around Christ quite intimately. So because of that, the letter would be anchored in the teachings of the apostles. Um, Evidently, too, the the author was quite educated. They seemed to understand rhetoric and philosophy and Jewish theology. But in 200 AD, Origen declared that only God knew who wrote this epistle. As well as the audience, we're not exactly sure who this was written to. There's there's good arguments that these were likely house churches in Rome. Um, There's good arguments that this was likely a Jewish Christian audience, but there was also likely a lot of Gentile believers there too, those who were not of Jewish um, heritage. And because of that, they were experiencing some sort of marginalization, some sort of shame with following Christ. They were seen as social outcasts. 
but the author seems to know this audience really well, and he assumes that they sort of have this thorough knowledge, this working framework uh, of the Old Testament. The author just assumes that the audience knows kind of the storyline of the first five books of the Bible. That's called the Torah. And they would have understood that Abraham's family became the nation of Israel, that Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they received the Ten Commandments. They made a covenant with God, built this tabernacle before wandering into the wilderness towards the promised land. If you don't know all of that backstory, that's quite all right. But the author kind of expects their audience to know all of this. So out of this, there's sort of this big idea in the book of Hebrews that the author looked to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else, showing us that Jesus is worthy of our trust and our devotion. In the audience, uh, he calls them to remain faithful despite any level of persecution. The author calls them to pursue Jesus, this pioneer and this trailblazer of their faith. Now, we're going to dive into this passage pretty deeply tonight. It's going to get a little bit technical. Um, so before I do that, I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about the passage that we're about to work through. I mentioned that evidently the audience thought too highly of angels. Jewish thought basically said that angels were second in the created or order, next only to God. And out of this, the author begins to navigate seven Old Testament quotations that declare Christ's superiority to angels. Five of these are from the Psalms that we're about to read. One of them is from uh, Deuteronomy, and uh, one of them is from 2 Samuel. And out of this, we learn a ton about the nature and the character of Jesus. So be listening to that. And this passage begins sort of this, uh, this discussion with this comparative adjective, that of Jesus being better. Jesus is better than any person or prophet or messenger or spiritual being. So our focus statement this evening is this, that Jesus is superior to any messenger of God's word and carries the most superior message. So beginning in Hebrews 1 uh, verse 5, again it says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or again I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, there's probably a question in everyone's minds right now. What are angels? You mentioned Charlie's angels. You mentioned It's a Wonderful Life. But what are angels, at least from a historical and a biblical perspective? You know, I tell you, there is an abundance of mentions of angels throughout the scriptures, but there's less detail specific to their nature or their purpose. Uh, most times when angels are mentioned within, within scripture, it's, it's incidental to some other occasion or topic or theme. Angels kind of play uh, a supporting role, if you will, within the Bible. And they're mentioned, actually, 196 times in 34 different books. There's many references to angels by Jesus himself. But theologian Karl Barth on angels, he says they're the most remarkable and the most difficult of all. Lucky me. And I think a lot of this comes from the fact that a lot of the details about angels are sort of omitted in scripture. And I think this has led to a lot of speculation and imagination and honestly just weirdness in the church when we think about or talk about angels. It's weird to think about, right? So a simple definition for you is angels are spiritual beings created by God to serve him. Some, the good angels, have remained obedient to him and carry out his will, while others, fallen angels, disobeyed, fell from their holy position, and now stand in active opposition to the work and plan of God. 
The word for angel in Hebrew is malek. Can you say that with me? Well done. The word for angel in Greek that's used here in Hebrews is angelos. Can you say that with me? Well done. This simply means messenger. It's used to describe one who is sent and executes the purpose and the will of whom they serve. So again, what are angels? Uh, Number one, angels are created beings. Colossians tells us how Christ created all that is visible and all that is is invisible. And Psalm 142 actually speaks to the creation of angels. It refers to them as holy ones. They're a creation out of a holy God. They're holy in their purpose. They're set apart by God and for God. Number two, angels are spirit beings or spiritual beings. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Hebrews 1 uh, verse 14 calls them ministering spirits. And the Bible talks about a variety of spiritual beings, but angels are one of them that is unique. Uh, They don't seem to have physical or material bodies, but within Scripture we do see this occasional physical manifestation of angels. But uh, essentially speaking, they live in the spiritual realm. Uh, Thirdly, they're personal beings. They seem to have personalities, or they're interacted with throughout Scripture. They're, They're moral creatures and characterized as holy. Again, though, they're created by God, so because of that, they, they live with some sort of personalities like God. Number four, they're, they're powerful. Uh, talks about the power of angels in Scripture. In Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus implies that angels have some, some level of superhuman knowledge or a knowledge that's greater than humans. Again, they're not all-knowing. They only know what God permitted them to know. And it refers to them as hosts. Uh, hosts in context here is kind of this uh, military term, an army type term, uh, with this idea of warfare being sent to serve the one that sends them. That's what angels are. There you go. But what do they do um, within Scripture? We see them doing a few different things. Uh, number one, angels seem to continually praise and glorify God. Usually this is in his presence, but we see this actually occurring on earth. When Jesus is born, it's angels who say glory to God in the highest. Secondly, they reveal and communicate God's message to humans. In the Old Testament, angels were the mediators of God's law. They brought the 12, there are 10 commandments, not 12, there's only 10, um, to Moses. And they also speak to many in the New Testament. Thirdly, they, they minister to believers. In the New Testament, it was an angel that delivered Peter from prison. They seem to rejoice as believers come to know Jesus. They have some level of care into our well-being. Next, they they execute judgment on the enemies of God. Uh, In the Old Testament, it was an angel of the Lord that brought justice to the Assyrians, the enemies of the Israelites. That's out of 2 Kings. And finally, we read that angels will be involved in the second coming. They'll accompany Jesus in his triumphant return back to earth one day, just like they were present with him many moments throughout his life. Now, there's a crash course on angelology for you. If you want to read more, I won't provide any more. I'd recommend a book. It's called Christian Theology by Millard Erickson. Uh, That's one amongst many resources that are out there if if you're interested in that sort of thing. So point one tonight, uh, beginning in verse five, is that Jesus has a superior name. He seems to be unique and set apart. The author begins verse five here with this rhetorical question, for to which of the angels did God ever say? And then the author goes on to quote our first two Old Testament passages. The first is Psalm 2, verse 7, that says, You are my son, and today I have become your father. Here in Hebrews, Jesus seems to be singled out. 
He's focused on by God. And this begins to show God's relational character, which is awesome. And this personal address of sonship was never given to an angel. Angels are typically referred to in the plural throughout Scripture. Jesus is singled out. They also quote 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, which says, I will be his father, he will be my son. This is referring to God's promise to King David through a prophet named Nathan. King David, he's, one of the mo- he's probably the most famous uh, Israelite king. And David desires to build a house for the Ark of God, the, or the Ark of the Covenant. This is a gold chest that houses the stone Ten Commandments. Um, but the prophet Nathan says to, to David here that God does not desire a house of cedar, but he actually desires to establish David's house into perpetuity. It was this desire that the royal throne of David would actually endure forever. So the author here of Hebrews is referring to Jesus as the seed of David, the answer to this promise he made many years prior. The focus is less on this divine essence, um, but it's referring to God's choice to extend the rule of David. Jesus' dad, his earthly dad, his name was Joseph. Joseph came from this line of David, so this infers this Davidic um, destiny that Jesus would live into. God installed Jesus to rule here on earth. Jesus is now at the right hand of God, and he's going to rule through all of eternity, and that's a good thing. So this idea of sonship is that God anointed Jesus to rule. This is seen in Luke 1 as well. Ironically, it's an angel speaking to Christ's mother, Mary. In Luke 1, it says, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. What all this is boiling down to is that Jesus has the greatest name. He has the most unique title. He is the Son of God. And names are really special, right? You all have names. These were picked and they were curated by your parents, probably for some specific reason. It's it's special to give someone a name or something a name. It's personal and it leads into relationship. My wife and I announced this week that we're pregnant. And yes. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. I should just drop the mic right at this moment. Um, It's scary and terrifying, but awesome at the same time. We're we're really grateful. She's 13 weeks along. She's into her second trimester, which is really crazy. And the first thing that people start to ask you after you you announce that you're pregnant and announce this type of thing is, what is the gender? Are you nervous? Are they healthy? What's the name going to be? And here's a bunch of ideas as to what I think it should be named, right? (laughs) We've gotten Vladimir already, and to that we said, we're not Russian spies. Our baby's not going to be named Vladimir. We don't even know what the gender is yet. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the, the right and the privilege to name something or someone belongs to the parents. It's special to name your child, right? Before this, this happened, I'd only named my dog, Charlie. Um, uh, but as we, my wife and I, we discuss different name options with one another, uh, we start to imagine this person that's going to live and walk on this earth, all their characteristics, their entire life, we're already praying for them. And whatever we decide on in terms of a name, it's going to be unique, it's going to be special, it's going to signify a life. But Jesus has the greatest name, it's the Son of God, and that's a unique title only given to him. Jesus has a superior name, he is unique, and he is set apart. 
Look at verse 6. Uh, verse 6 says this, And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 32. In that chapter, it says, Let all God's angels worship him. And what this is saying was, All of creation was to worship God. And the same call to worship is now being applied to Jesus. Jesus was to be worshipped like God because he is God. And this this word, the firstborn, I'm sure you saw that and thought, what does that mean? Uh, In theology, it's actually debated uh, a little bit. This idea of Jesus being the firstborn, uh, it could refer to the incarnation of Jesus when he first became human, or to his eventual second coming when Jesus will return one day. F.F. Bruce, a commentator, though, says, he is called the firstborn because he exists before all creation and because all creation is his heritage. Jesus was involved with creation. He was there for creation, and even now, he holds it all together. So the call to worship here is actually, no, angels worship Jesus. All of creation worships Jesus. We don't worship angels. There's a couple instances of angel worship in the Bible that are corrected really quickly. Uh, In Colossians, um, angel worship is is connected to people in the church there worshiping angels. It's also mentioned in Revelation. John is rebuked by an angel for worshiping an angel. So, point is that Jesus has a superior position. He is the focus of worship for all of creation, and we actually worship Jesus alongside the angels. Verse 7, we're moving along here, says, In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. Authors now quoting Psalm 104, which says, He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. This is referring to angels and sort of their place in the entire divine administration of the universe. And it was in order to show that even though angels sit at a high place, it's inferior to the supremacy that is given to the Son, being Jesus. So we get into this contrasting language here. The author's contrasting the, the evanescence, the fleeting nature, the transitory nature of angels against the eternity of the Son. And the point is that, yes, wind is swift, Fire is strong, but Jesus himself is more powerful. Jesus has a superior power. He is more powerful than anything, more powerful and lasting than anything else spiritual, including the angels. Jesus is powerful. How often do we forget that? You know, speaking of wind... There was, a, there was a terrible thing that happened this week. You probably saw it in the news. Uh, there was these images of devastation in Alabama as a, tor- as a tornado ripped through the forest and houses and lives. And this was a display of the wind's power. There's no denying the power of this wind to the families who lost loved ones this week. But you know, it's the power of Jesus that is greater than the wind. And I believe this might be a word for just even one of you guys today. It was a reminder to me this week because I think we're quick to remember the love of Christ, the patience of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the peace and the patience and the grace of Jesus. Those are all really good things. But you know what? We serve a powerful God in Jesus. And it's the power of Jesus that can change your life. It's the power of Jesus that can change your situation, that can cause you to fall on your knees as you're worshiping him, 
to lead you into deliverance of something that you're struggling in life. It's the power of Jesus that can cause miracles in your life. Have you forgotten that Jesus is powerful? This is saying that Jesus has a superior power. Look at verses 8 and 9. Say, but about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. The author now is moving into Psalm 45 here in terms of the quotes, and he's doing this to reinforce the Son's identity as divine and eternal, but he's also declaring this righteous reign that God has anointed him to serve. See, Psalm 45 talks about this royal wedding, not Kate's royal wedding, but there's this, there's this exaggerated praise that is given to a human king. This human king is seen metaphorically as God because the king represents God's rule here on earth. And uh, the language describes the king's permanence and justness of rule with kind of these ideal and these overstated terms. And I'll tell you what, this, these ideal and overstated terms are profoundly true of Jesus as king. F.F. Bruce on this passage says, All things created, even the angels, are subject to time and tide, chance and decay. But the throne of God's Son endures forever. He is the kingdom that is to know no end. What this is getting at is that Jesus has always been, and he always will be. And because of that, he has an authority that will last throughout the ages. This is shown in creation. This is shown in Christ's love for us. And this will be shown throughout eternity. Do you know what a scepter is? Kind of a weird word here. Um, I, saw, I saw Jess hold out her scepter back there. Um, do any of you guys care, carry one of these around in your daily lives? Um, I don't, uh, but a scepter is, uh, it's really a, sy- a symbolic ornamental staff or a wand that's carried by a ruling monarch. It's an item of royal or imperial insignia. That's what Wikipedia told me. <laughs> <laughs> And a scepter, though, it is a symbol of power, of domination, of royalty. But in our world, this symbol of power and royalty has always come with an abuse of power. It's always come with some level of, injust- of, some level of injustice. But I'll tell you what, the kingdom we're reading about here in Hebrews is the only kingdom ever characterized by perfect righteousness. And what that means is that Jesus, this king we're talking about, is personally devoted to these principles. Jesus is personally devoted to justness of rule. Jesus has a superior authority, and he rules with justice, and that is a good thing. Look at verses 10 through 12. They say, he also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will row them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. Thanks, right on time. Here the author is beginning to quote Psalm 102. And what this is saying is that because the sun is in the beginning, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And because of that, 
when all creation changes, Jesus' years will never end. The Son's eternal existence is foundational to his ongoing rule. While creation grows old, Jesus will outlast all of it. And in a lifetime, this is saying, we outlive many sets of clothes. Maybe you roll up your robe and cast it aside. I hope you haven't been wearing the same outfit all week long. Uh, so here is a hamper. And these are my clothes. And they are not dirty. They're not smelly. I'll lift them up. I, I, These are clean, I have no underwear in there. <laughs> but this is about what I wear in a week, give or take. Maybe there's a few things I couldn't fit in there. There's a few shirts, there's a sweater, there's a jacket, there's a couple pairs of pants, there's some workout clothes. I don't think there's any socks in there. I do usually wear socks, though. <laughs> but by Thursday night, typically next to our bed, uh, there's like this anthill-sized pile of clothes. All the things that I wear throughout the week on both sides of our bed. Because we get home, we take them off, we throw them aside, we put on our sweats and our comfy stuff. We're start, starting to accumulate these clothes that we roll up and throw aside. And I'll tell you, we probably wear our clothes for a few years. We then roll them up, we donate them, we get rid of them. They might be holy and we don't want to see them anymore. They're always changing every single day. But Jesus remains the same. All of creation had a beginning. It changes like the clothes that we wear every week and we throw aside or whatever. But Jesus himself is eternal. He'll remain without end. Jesus has a superior authority, and he will rule without end. Getting to our final um, couple verses here, verses 13 and 14. They say, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? The author now is quoting Psalm 110, and there's a similar verse like this that appears in a lot of places in Scripture, in 1 Peter and Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, and it's in reference to Christ. And it presents this major theme in the book of Hebrews. See, this highlights this special rule and relationship between God and his rule on earth. This talks about Jesus being at the right hand of God. While angels are surrounding the throne, Jesus is at the right hand on the throne with God. Have you ever planned a wedding before? It is the most stressful and dramatic thing that I have ever been through. I don't know how people get divorces ever because you've got to plan another one, potentially. It, it's the worst. Zach and Sammy, I know, are planning a wedding right now, and we'll pray for you guys. Well done. So don't listen to this. But it is stressful because you think through all of these placements as to where people will be in places of honor. Who's going to stand next to you as the best man? Where's the family's table going to be? Who are all the rejects that you're going to compile at the back table in the very back? I've sat at those before. I don't even know why they invited me. I'm sitting next to like, I don't know, second cousin from New Jersey and neighbor from three houses ago and me and Cassie trying to get to know one another. See, there's, there's all these seats of honor at a wedding. I had two best men. Their names are Austin and Casey. They're not here tonight. They should have been. But they both stood at my right hand. I don't remember who was actually next to me. They didn't, they didn't really care. There wasn't this drama with them. Our family sat really close to us too. You see, Jesus sits at a place of honor next to God, and this carries with it the promise of victory over all his enemies. This is a place of honor. Jesus is the right-hand man. That's where we get that, that language from. 
So Jesus has a superior authority. He rules from the right hand of God. Well, the angels are all around God's throne, flying around those little cherubs that I talked about. Jesus is at the right hand of God. While the angels serve and minister, Jesus directs and he leads. While the angels move about as messengers, the greatest message comes in Jesus himself. Jesus is superior to any messenger of God's word and carries the most superior message. I'd like to invite our worship team up once again as we come to a close this evening. Sorry, you can dodge the hamper there. I'll move it aside. Did it smell, Colin? No. Good. Good. Jesus is superior to any messenger of God's word and carries with him the most superior message. Now, I said the focus of Hebrews, like I've talked about at nauseum tonight, is the superiority of Christ. He sits in a superior place. He rules with a superior position. He has a superior authority. That's what I've been studying all week long, thinking through and praying about. And I'm grateful that Jesus is superior, aren't you? But it's the good news of Jesus, within the good news of Jesus, of the gospel, that there is this glaring paradox. We've talked a lot about the superiority of Jesus. But I want to end with the message that Jesus was carrying And God's been turning my attention to the book of Philippians this week. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And I think this is laid out beautifully in the message version. It says, Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself. He had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. In the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow and worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. See, the good news of Jesus is that he who is the most superior made the most superior sacrifice out of his superior love for you. And you don't have to be a superior person with a superior track record or even impressive in any way to him. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And his superior love will be lavished upon you.